listening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today we're going to talk about all the wonderful things that the Center for Democracy and Technology are doing about privacy in Washington, D.C. And for many years, we have had guests on who've been directors of the CDT, and we are just so thrilled because... This morning, we have Michelle DeMoy, who is the director of the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. She advocates for individual control and autonomy in digital systems and in policy. And Michelle works with industry and other stakeholders to promote good data practices. She also researches emerging technologies that impact that really impact our personal privacy. And she leads CDT's health privacy work, and she chairs the Health Privacy Working Group. Michelle's research has lately focused on data ethics in health, automated decision-making in commercial health, and direct-to-consumer testing of genetic data. She's testified before Congress on health policy, and she's a frequent media contributor, and we're so glad that she is with us. You can find out more about her at our website at privacypiracy.org and also at her website for the uh, the organization's uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology at cdt.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us from the East Coast, Michelle. Oh, thank you for having me, Mary. It's it's fantastic to be on your show, and of course, many many of my colleagues and and friends have have been on your show, and and it's always a great experience. So thanks again for having me. Oh, great! Now, how is it that you got into privacy and healthcare privacy? People like to know how this all came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I get that question quite a bit, and it, it always makes me happy because I, I, I hope to encourage lots of people to, to get involved, not just sort of in advocacy, but in the profession. You know, I, I, I would not say it was a linear path for me. I, I started out in the first 1990s dot-com boom. I think that ages me. And um, I, I was doing product marketing, software engineering, lots, lots of um, technical stuff, and then moved into product marketing for different kinds of websites and, and then sort of evolved into consulting for nonprofits on technology. And then when I moved to D.C., it was sort of all policy, policy, um, and a little bit of politics. And I ended up working on quite a bit on privacy for consumer action, which some of your listeners may know. Right. California-based organization. Yeah. And I, I really got into it. Um, I've done lots of, of work over the years with women's and families' nonprofits. So the health privacy part of it was sort of a natural fit for me. And um, my, my three years at CDT have been fantastic. So far, wow! So I got to ask you another question. How did you be so? How did you become so techie? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's see. I guess I could say I, I've always been interested in, in how systems work and, and just sort of curious about how they work and how to pull them apart. And when I was coming out of school, I moved to the San Francisco area, and, and of course, that was all tech, all the right, right. dot-com tech. And so it was a really open time. It, it was a time where you could just dive in and learn anything. And so lots of the, the dot-coms that I worked for really encouraged and allowed that kind of creativity and, and exploration. So that that's how. Um, I went to an engineering school, Lehigh University, but I didn't actually study engineering. Um, I, I did it sort of on the side. I studied government. So, so in many ways, this, this position working on technology and policy is a great fit for me. Oh my goodness, yeah, it is really a blend of everything that you've been studying up until then, right? So that's great, great. great. It is great. It's nice to have that kind of background knowledge, especially when I spend a lot of time talking to companies. You know, many times people who work in policy may not necessarily have the sort of business perspective, and so that, that I think that's really helpful in the discussions that we have with companies. Yeah, you can speak both languages. <laughs> too. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about um, the what has happened with broadband privacy and the rules. You know, this, this, the FCC has gotten involved in privacy a great deal lately. So I understand that Congress rolled back broadband privacy rules that were adopted by the FCC last year. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about those rules. And that was under Obama, right? And now yeah. there's been some changes. Can you give us a little bit of understanding about that? Oh, sure. So the um, you know we supported the FCC's broadband privacy rules, which were developed as you, as you mentioned over about a year um, in 2016, and involved a lot of. of stakeholder input from academics and advocates and, and industry. Um, so it was a really thoughtful um, set of rules, and we think that they were really common sense, and they, we think that they protected privacy and, and security, but they didn't impede innovation, in our opinion. So what the rules kind of can be boiled down to is this. ISPs, or Internet Service Providers, were required to get your permission before they could use or share data. Mm-hmm. So, so this data, you know, that that ISPs have access to is not just from web browsers, which I think is maybe the was the top line um, messaging that that a lot of people heard about. It includes any data from like internet internet connected phones and televisions and IoT devices, which we all increasingly have, and all of this together can reveal really personal information about <coughs> also our families and and you know things like our financial health, our our health data, social security numbers precise location, application usage, so lots of stuff that that can really show a revealing picture of us. And so the goal of the rules was to give consumers the tools and the information that they need to make sort of an informed privacy decision. So it's not about impeding growth or innovation, as as some of the ISPs have have said. It was much more about, you know, they they were still allowed to use customer data for marketing, for example, or for using it, whatever they needed to provide their services. Um, But they also required things like protecting the security of customer data, which right now there are no rules that require them to protect them. To let people know about data breaches, for example, oh. maybe one of the most important parts too right. is not to not condition a customer service on whether or not they allow the ISP to share their personal information. All of this, um, all of these rules would have gone into effect later this year. So now that it's rolled back, we don't have any of those rules. Right. Well, we know we haven't. We never did. <laughs> not not really. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, they were supposed to be implemented. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, again, a lot of um, the process that the FCC had implemented under the Obama administration 
was, in my opinion, really thoughtful. Um, it really went through a lot of phases to try to get everybody's perspective, and there were still going to be parts of that um, coming into this year. But, of course, um, the Congress enacted what they call a Congress- Congressional Review Act, a CRA. And what that did was essentially stop the rules from going into effect and also stop the FCC from making any substantially similar rules in the future. Right. So it took away their authority to, to like the Federal Trade Commission can put in a lot of privacy uh, rules, but it, it basically kept the FCC from making those rules as well? Yeah, that's right. It did. Um, you know, the, the FCC has a jurisdiction over common carriers under Title II. It gets really super wonky, but, but essentially they are required by Congress to protect the data and to have some some way of, of uh, making sure that they're, they're recognizing people's privacy. And so these rules were, were responsive to that. When, when they were taken away, and, and mostly they were taken away because the, the opponents said that the FCC lacked the authority to, to protect broadband customers' privacy, said you know, that the provider should be free to use and share the customer data, particularly browsing history. That was really contentious. And that they should be subject, broadband providers should be subject to the same regime as other Internet companies like Google and Facebook. And the reason I bring that up is because when, when you talk about the Federal Trade Commission, their argument was that, well, this is something that should be done, handled under the Federal Trade Commission. The thing they didn't really tell people is that there have been court cases recently that have really called into question whether or not the, the Federal Trade Commission has jurisdiction also. So mm. it's really just this big, uncertain morass of regulation. You know, I, I've asked Internet service provider companies, who do you think regulates you right now? And they say, honestly, we don't know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right, right. Under the FCC, but there's a lot of change afoot. And, and, the, F, and the FTC doesn't even really have the, the resources to do that. And obviously, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau isn't even really dealing with those issues. So it's not under their jurisdiction either. That's right. That's right. It's, it's really difficult to enforce privacy, and the FTC has limited resources, but they've done a pretty good job of trying to do it. But, you know, of course, the, the FCC does have a limited enforcement ability in terms of their, you know, being able to get out in the field and, and understand what's going on, but mm. have rulemaking authority, mm. which is something the, the FTC doesn't have and is a huge difference. What that means is that the Federal Trade Commission ends up going after um, problems that they see after the fact. So it's right. So versus, you know, if you have rulemaking authority, you can say, okay, don't do this in the future, and it's much more effective. Right, right. But now, the, now their hands are tied at the FCC is basically what you're saying. Am I correct? Well, I wouldn't feel too sorry for the FCC. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not feeling sorry for them, but I just wish that they had that, that uh, enforcement power now, right? I mean, they don't have the enforcement power if they don't have the rules in effect. What are they going to enforce? Yeah, do you mean the, the Federal Trade Commission? No, I'm talking about the FCC. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so they still have jurisdiction over these ISPs. Um, the, what's, what's the question right now is whether or not Title II will be rolled back, and that is, of course, the, also the component of net neutrality. And so oh, right yeah, now... That's um, a biggie. That's a biggie, yeah. The, the commissioner, you know, Ajit Pai, has, has begun the process of the rollback, and so once that happens, if it does happen... The, the ISPs will go under Title I, which is a very different statute and was created at a very different time. 
Um, but, you know, we, we at CDT have advocated really strongly for net neutrality and for the broadband privacy rules. And, you know, we, we don't always come out in favor of every single privacy protection, but we think that these were really common sense and, and were for the good of people, um, were for the good of the ecosystem, the online ecosystem. So if, you, if, if your listeners are interested in learning more detail about that, they can visit CDT.org and really find out a lot of information about net neutrality and broadband privacy. And, and especially with broadband privacy, that was negotiated. It wasn't just consumer advocates and privacy advocates. It was industry and the ISPs had a say too, right? Oh, yes, yes. And, and so here that you had worked so hard to negotiate these rules, which I'm sure the privacy advocates didn't get everything they wanted, <laughs> right? Everybody had to compromise. And yet, so, so exactly how did... Were you guys testifying when Congress did the rollback? Did you have any ability to come in and say anything about this? Not really. Mm. There, there was a little bit more transparency. Um, you know, there, there were actually there was actually opposition from some Republicans for this too. There were notably, I think, fifteen House Republicans voted against the CRA, and and a lot of this had to do with the fact that their constituents were coming out. You know, of course, groups like CDT were also sending letters and calling and advocating and saying this is not a this is a blunt instrument for a nuanced set of rules. Right. But what really I think got lawmakers' attention were the the calls and the the sort of outrage and flack that they got from their constituents. But it still is a rollback. They didn't change it. No, no, it still passed. And mm. Those rules are, are no longer. Right. What do you think is going to happen about net neutrality? Do you think the same thing is going to happen? Do you think you're going to lose on that one? I think it's tough to say. You know, I, I, I and again, it's not my issue. We actually have an open Internet um, project that works okay. closely on this. But I can yeah. say I think that there is a huge amount of public opposition to taking away net neutrality. Right. So, but it, it just really depends on whether the people in power care about that opposition. You know, if they get... You know, I think the, the FCC under Tom Wheeler, Chairman Tom Wheeler, got three million comments, right. something like that, and that was largely due to you know celebrities talking about it, John Oliver, and those kinds of people. If they keep the drumbeat on and and the public really pays attention and starts sending emails and comments and phone calls, that will make a difference. So my hope is that that will happen. And and you know, there is a day uh, coming up where companies like Amazon and others will will be posting things on their sites to alert people to this issue. So hopefully as the summer goes on, there will be more of a drumbeat that, that the public will pay attention to. Right. Important stuff. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, state privacy laws. You know, I come from a state that is really the leader in privacy legislation. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm proud of that. You know, we've got a lot of great... Uh, legislation we were the first state to really create the security breach laws so um why do you think that the states like california have gotten so involved in privacy legislation mm-hmm. i mean i really can't say enough about how wonderful it is that california is such a leader on privacy because as it goes in california it goes in the rest of the country many times right so often when there's a dearth of, of federal policymaking or law related to privacy, California will step in 
And so I think my opinion about how the states have gotten involved, they've, they've always been involved, but it really ramped up after the CRA, after the rollback of the broadband privacy. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is because of the flack from the constituents. So it wasn't just the, you know, the congressional lawmakers who heard that flack. It was the state lawmakers, and they decided to do something. You know, many um, of the, the state legislatures are have equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans, not all, but many. There, there's a lot more um, bipartisan work that gets done. Right. There was agreement that the, this privacy was not something that was necessarily needed to be partisan, and, and it was something that a lot of their constituents were saying, we really want. And so, you know, you've had states like Illinois be really active. Illinois introduced a bill on geolocation privacy. Um, they also had a bill on, called the Right to Know Bill, which would have required companies to, to give consumers detailed information about how their data, what data is being collected and with whom they're sharing it. Right, right. That bill was killed mm. recently, recently, even though we, we actually went to Illinois and testified on behalf of it. And part of the reason um, it's, it, it was killed is because a lot of people, I think, in, in, the, in the industry perspective, this seems like a really onerous um, issue. That right, right, right. To set up, I think there was, you had to set up a website and an 800 number. They didn't want to have to do that. And also it's the precedent of it that right. I think made them uncomfortable. But the geolocation privacy bill is, is currently on the governor's desk and we're hoping that he'll sign it. Mm. So what do you think we're going to be seeing this, the rest of this year from the legislatures? I definitely think we'll, we'll see a lot more privacy bills. Um, you know, the, the states have, the more that they educate themselves on these issues, the more they're interested in, in enacting laws related to it. Uh-huh. For example, we've worked with a lot of states that are working on broadband privacy bills. And what they're doing is really taking the FCC's broadband privacy rules and putting them into context in their own states. Now, is that going to be preempted by the federal congressional law that was just passed? I mean, can they preempt that, or or is that separate? No, I mean, it's kind of a matter of legal opinion in some ways. You know, a lot of different attorneys will will maybe tell you different things. In my opinion, there is no grounds for for the um, federal government to preempt any kind of state law like that. Um, There might be arguments made. I think a lot of ISPs are really unhappy about these bills, and so that means that they will put the time and resources in to defeat them in any way that they can. But what what CDT has done to try to not just combat that but really be helpful in this scenario, not just advocating for the bills, but giving a lot of state lawmakers information about what the technologies are, you know, sort of defining lots of these really confusing terms like bias provider, um, helping them understand sort of when you use the word geolocation or encryption or other kinds of privacy-related technologies, that you're using it in a way that's accurate and that you're scoping the bills correctly. And, and that's really how we've been active. And I, I definitely think from what I've heard there will be a flurry of bills um, coming in the fall when a lot of the state legislatures reconvene. That's wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about your favorite thing, which is this healthcare privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people that walk around with their Fitbits, and you know they have their weight. They sign up on Weight Watchers or whatever, and they're tracking themselves, what they're eating or their exercise or whatever. Um, what do you think about that? What What are some of the privacy concerns that maybe they're not thinking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, fitness and activity trackers are have a lot of benefits, obviously. You know, they, they really have helped people I know become more active. Um, but they do come with some privacy concerns. And probably the biggest of those 
from where I stand is the fact that most of the data that's flowing in those systems are outside of any kind of um, privacy protection. So, you know, HIPAA, for example, the health privacy law, it wasn't really supposed to be, as you probably know, a health mm. privacy law, but that, that's all we have right now. Um, most of that data isn't governed by HIPAA, and it's, it's governed instead by the terms of service or the privacy policies of the right. that makes the device or the app. And so what that typically means, it doesn't always mean this, but what it typically means is they're sharing your data with, with a multitude of third parties. And so I think one of the concerns that I try to relate to people is know how your data is being used, know how it's being shared, and have a good sense, for example, too, of what the defaults of sharing are on, on whatever device or app that you're using. Many times there's a social component to these, whether it's for competition or motivation, and sometimes that means that your default information, um, whatever you're putting into the, the app or the device is defaulted to, to the public setting. And so it's just really important that people make themselves aware of all of those details before they sign up for something. Yeah, they have to look at the privacy policy and do their opt-out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, I feel terrible telling people to do that. But, you know, I will say that the longer, the, as I've been doing this for a couple of years now, I've noticed that more and more there are options. So whether it's that the company has, has kind of realized that, you know, our customers do care about their privacy or it's, it's actually products and services that come out that are encrypted or that, you know, don't share by default, there are more and more of those options. So I would also encourage people to really look into the, the options. Right, right. Either the lesser-known services. And I think there was, wasn't there um, the, a, a consent decree with a couple of these with the uh, Federal Trade Commission. So that's another thing. If if the Federal Trade Commission says there's a deceptive practice mm-hmm. for privacy, that, that also becomes an issue. Oh, definitely. You know, I wanted to talk about genetic privacy because my son, who lives in New York City, said, Oh, Mom, you know, um, why don't you give your DNA and, <laughs> and find out where we're really from? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like they do that television commercial oh i thought i was swedish but i'm really french or whatever right Mm -hmm. and um i have not agreed to do that of course if he does it 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 really does tell where (laughs) where i'm from anyway but um i just don't like the idea of giving my dna what do you think about that yeah, I hear you, and I hear that from, from quite a lot of people. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head, which is that when you're sharing that information, you're sharing your entire family tree's information um, pretty, pretty likely without everybody's consent. And so, you know, that is highly sensitive information that can, in fact, be shared with third parties. Now, it depends on the company and, and what their policies are, but not just data brokers, but also law enforcement. You know, if they are looking for information or if they're looking for some kind of DNA match, they regularly will go to these companies. And some companies resist and some don't. Some have a higher for what they, you know, when they will give this information. But that's something that I flag for people quite a bit because it really is a serious undertaking to, to put your DNA into a database. And, you know, it's done through a biospecimen, which there's some rules related to the, how those are, should be kept, but really not very many. Um, it, it's kind of a, a strange place in the, in the regulatory ecosystem between the FDA and, you know, the, the Department of Health and Human Services. There's sort of a lot of crisscrossing regulation, and none of it hits directly on privacy. Um, so I think, you know, those are great opportunities to learn about your history, but again, read the fine print. Make sure that the company that you're dealing with is reputable and has a really detailed and easy to understand policy about this. I wouldn't necessarily say 
that for every single company, um, although I would love for that to be the case, but particularly when you're doing direct to cons- when you're doing a genetic test, they need to be on it. They need to have some kind of policy that you truly understand. If they don't have that, walk away. Exactly. So, you know, what I, I was thinking about that, that if they share, let's say, with insurance companies, you know, maybe in the future that might be that I, I wouldn't be able to get life insurance or health insurance or something that could be used against you or, you know, if they find out that, you, let's say, your mortgage company, with you're applying for a mortgage and they happen to get a hold of that information and you have something that subjects you maybe to have some severe uh, illness such as cancer or whatever, they may decide that they don't want to give you a mortgage or something, you know? I mean, you know... If I can think of it, then it can be done, right? I never thought of that scenario. That's a that's a really frightening one, and I think that you're right. That's that's where everything is going. You think, for example, of employee wellness programs, which you know really concern me in a lot of ways, and one of which is because the you know the rules that were meant to protect our health information in the workplace, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and and GINA, the Genetic Non Information Non Disclosure Act, both of those are superseded by wellness programs from the Affordable Care Act. You know, that, that act really incentivized wellness programs, and what they end up doing is being sort of this cost-shifting mechanism for employers. What they're looking for is high-risk employees, and they can use genetic testing. They can use uh, lots of different kinds of screenings, health risk assessments. You know, they're, they're getting a super high amount of really sensitive data, and sometimes those wellness programs are outside of HIPAA. You know, sometimes they're right. through, you know, a different your health insurance plan, in which case they would be under HIPAA, which is great, but there are also third-party vendors that will come into a program that isn't under the, the group health insurance, and those plans are only governed by, again, the terms of service of the third-party vendor, so they can be sharing lots of really sensitive information. And people need to know that, you know, if you think that HIPAA is going to really protect you. There's not even a private right of action <laughs> if there's a violation of HIPAA. So HIPAA is, you know, I mean, it has to be something pretty egregious for for HIPAA to, for someone to, you know, have a governmental agency come in and fine a hospital or a genetic company. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's really, there isn't really that much protection under HIPAA to begin with. So, yeah, it scares me about giving my DNA, and I, I haven't done that, and I don't want to do it, uh, even though some of those things would be very interesting. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I think, you know, OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, is charged with enforcing HIPAA violations, and they've done a really good job in the last couple of years with very little resources. You know, they basically have to make their own budget through enforcement fees and fines, and they have done a lot with a little bit. And so, you know, I feel encouraged by that, but again, there's only so much they can do. So really it is the public that has to be vigilant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we really don't have a, a lot of time left, but I did want to ask you a little bit about data ethics and tell us about uh, CDT's work on, you know, on with data ethics. Sure. I, I think the best way to, to talk about that work is um, just briefly to mention this project that we did with Fitbit. Uh, speaking of Fitbit, we we embarked on this project, which they agreed to do, which was so surprising and wonderful and groundbreaking. And what we did was we mapped um, the company's internal data flows. So we looked at how they use data for internal research and development. Mm-hmm. Any kind of tech company, they're, they're using lots of data to figure out what's next, what's the next product or service. 
And so they let us look at how they use it and when they use it, and we mapped that out and then tried to come up with a framework for privacy, security, and ethics. Ah. Ethics component, the reason that that came up is because we realized many of the questions facing the researchers weren't entirely privacy, they weren't entirely security, and they were, in fact, in this different area, this ethical area. For example, if you see a pattern in the data that shows that somebody may have a condition or a disease in the future, but that's not what they signed up for you to tell them. Right. Tell them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really That's the moral issue. It is. It is a moral issue. And I think ethics are sort of this, this interesting combination of, of micro and macro concerns. So mm. sort of like how a system uses a person's data, how it impacts them in a positive or a negative way. You know, what, and then the, the macro questions are what's the company's role in the bigger picture of society? So right. Fitbit, what are you doing for the social good? How are you stewarding this data? Because this is really sensitive data, but it's also a part of this bigger conversation that we are having globally about health. And, you know, what does it mean for a company to hold all of this health information? How are you making it, putting it to good use? And so one of, um, we came up with recommendations for the company, and one of them was related to social good, and it said you need to publish some of this information because we knew that they could protect it in a privacy, you know, in a good way, in privacy and security protective way, but you need to let people know about this. And that's, you know, that's not what a lot of those companies want to do. They see it as very proprietary so this, this was a really interesting and a great learning experience, and it taught me a lot about what it means to apply this idea of ethics to, to a data company. Well, I love it. And what a great way to end about ethics. So we are really just out of time, and we've been speaking with Michelle DeMoy, and you can find out more about the great work that the Center for Democracy and Technology is doing by going to cdt.org. So we are just out of time, but thank you so much, and please stay in touch so we can and have you back again, okay? I will. Thank you, Mari. I really appreciate you having me on the show today. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Visit us at that website and join us every Monday morning at 8.30. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 